Trading Nut, Episode 12. The market is manipulated every single day and almost probably every single minute of the market. But manipulation doesn't mean illegal. It means that they're willing to push prices higher or lower. The market's going to do something. Your job is not to fight it. The market never, ever runs away. It's always there. That personal diary of trading will make you a much better trader than... I could be right about the direction, but wrong about the trade. Don't focus on the monetary side. Trying to make too much money on a trade is what I have seen killed every trader. Your losses offer you some of the greatest insight you can find into your mistakes. Relax. Learn the process. Candlestick pattern trading is a freaking trap. Don't be in a rush to become a millionaire. Let the market tell you what the market wants to tell you. This podcast is not financial, trading, or investing advice of any kind. What's up, traders? Welcome to... Another installment of the Trading Up podcast. I'm your host, Cam Hawkins, and today I've got Gary Fuller on the show. So Gary's from LTG Trading. He's a Wyckoff master, and he's a master because he's been trading from uh, way back in the 80s. So 1981 is when he started off, and he's a member of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Um, and boy, does he! we've got a great interview. We've got an absolute great interview. So it's a top three in my books, top three. And if you're just new to the Trading Nut podcast, you'll know that I've also done the 52 Traders podcast. Well, you might not know that I've done the 52 Traders podcast. So top three is, is that's, that's top three out of a lot, a lot of traders out there. So we're going to hear that interview in a second. And what's more, we've been working on a little something, a world first for you listeners out there and anyone else that joins the podcast and is a new listener. It's a world first um, so what I want you to do is stay tuned. It's going to come up in just a second. I'm going to mention exactly what that is. But before I do, maybe you can tell from the way I'm talking that something's changed over here at Trading Art. Well, it has. I've actually gone full time. So as of last Friday, that was my last day of of my contract. There was a, it was a, I was there for seven months in the end. So I've gone back full-time on trading that, which I'm really pumped about. I'm going to do some cool new things. So one of them is over on the YouTube channel. So if you're not subscribed to the YouTube channel, jump over there, subscribe to it now because, uh, shall I put a link? I'll put. I'll try and put a link into the, into the description so you guys can get to it easily. Um, so jump over there because I'm going to be chucking up a whole lot of new content. And what I'm thinking is, one, um, I'm going to be walking you through strategies that I've discovered, found, and we're going to see how they play out on the chart. So I'm actually going to automate some of them. So this is part of the work that I do is for the Robot Traders Club where I'm going through strategy after strategy to try and get a strategy that's profitable um, in the past and something that's likely to be profitable in the future so that you guys on the monthly membership for the Robot Traders Club and the Gold membership can get access to, um, to these robots that are working well. So... You guys are going to get a sneak peek into that. We're going to go through some strategies. You're at least going to learn a strategy and whether or not you know these robots or this strategy is actually looking promising. So I'm really pumped about that. And, and another thing I want to do, which I only thought about in the weekend, and I thought, well, this, is, this has got some legs, I think. So I'm calling it You Teach. Okay, And so this is where I get past guests on the show, um, future guests on the show, that have been on the show or even other guys that have just got some stuff to say and don't want to be on the podcast or whatever. They just want to teach 
other traders something that's going to be useful. So they'll be short little videos, screen sharing, so you'll actually be able to see stuff on the charts where I'll sit down with another trader and go through um, something a little bit uh, educational, something that's going to teach you something about the market. So worthwhile jumping over there to the YouTube channel to get notifications. Click Apparently there's a bell you can click to get the notifications. So click on the bell um, and you'll get notifications when these new videos go live and you can watch them and get educated at the same time. So guys, right, what was the thing I was talking about? It was a little special world first, a little special, it's a big special world first here. Trading Nut is doing a world first and let me know if it's not the world first, but I'm claiming it as a world first. So world first edu contest. World first edu contest. What does that mean? Well, in actual fact, it's a demo trading edu contest. So I mentioned to some of my gold members and Robot Trader Club members and pro members that um, there's a demo competition coming up. And in actual fact, it's a demo edu contest. What does that mean? Well, it means that you're going to get a couple of weeks of intensive education along with a course, along with some ongoing information that's going to help you um, pick really good trades and support the education. And at the end of it, you're going to have a chance to win back your tuition fee. So what you pay for the course and 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 a bag of cash, what that is is dependent on how many people we get signed up. So that's going to grow, okay? So that's going to grow. So you're going to see that grow as you join. So this is quite a unique offering, all right? So you guys are going to get some education. You're going to get to win your education feedback, and you're going to get a chance to win a pot of cash, which you can put towards a trading account or spend on whatever you want to do. It's up to you. So guys, that's right here, right now. You can get that. And all you need to do is go over to tradingnut.com. Either have a look at Gary's episode, because Gary's the one that's going to be doing the training. Okay, Gary's the one that's going to be doing the training. He's been doing this for years. He's very good at it. He thinks we're going to have a great competition where not only will somebody win it, well, in actual fact, we might have multiple winners, okay? So there's not just one chance to win. There's a few chances to win. Um, But Gary's pretty confident that you guys are going to be turning up in the market's 2019 looking in a much better shape than you currently are okay so um what are the details and the dates around this look now's your chance to get in there's a special 10 percent early bird off offer on getting into it okay so if you want to get that 10 percent off discount then head over to tradingnut.com forward slash demo comp that's demo comp d-e-m-o-c-o-m-p and you'll get direct access to that page. I'll put some ads up on the site, so you should be able to find it either in Gary's show notes or on the sidebar um, to get into it. So the comp starts in early Jan. So it's early Jan, the comp starts, and you'll get your training before that. Sorry, no, it doesn't start early Jan. Early Jan, the training starts. So straight after, everyone comes back after Christmas, and they're pumped for the trading year when the market's really hot. You'll be in that competition You'll have a couple of weeks of intensive training. You'll get access to stuff before the training. And then um, you'll have that competition straight after it. We're coming into, I think it's sometime in February. Uh, The competition will wrap up and you guys will find out who the winner is and who gets that pot of cash um, or pots of cash and, um, and wins their tuition back as well. So guys, fantastic little opportunity there for you to check it out. As I said, jump onto tradingnut.com forward slash demo comp. 
or you'll find, and actually I'll put a link in the show notes as well, or you'll find it on Gary's show notes, or you'll find it in the sidebar advertising it as well. So it's a world first. Share this, guys. So it's not just for you listeners. So if you want other people to get take advantage of this, then flick it out to them as well. Um, right. Let's get on with the show. And uh, boy, heck, it's a doozy. We've got top three show here, okay? It's a top three show. Um, so let's welcome Gary and get on with it. All right, folks, so we've got Gary Fuller on the show here from LTG Trading. Actually, I had a, another LTG Trading group uh, on on the show way back when I first started uh, 52 Traders. I think it was episode like eight or something. How's it going there, Gary, over in Chicago? Very well. Um, getting to be winter here, or at least uh, late fall, but uh, going well. Thank you. And I think it was probably winter last time we tried to, to hook up this call. It's taken us forever to, to manage to do this. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. It's maybe e- maybe it's the cold maybe it's the cold phone lines across the pond. Who knows? I know, I know. We just couldn't we just couldn't make it work. And finally we got here. So um we're gonna have a, a great show for you listeners out there. So so stay tuned. Right, so so let's get started and and I suppose take us all the way back to not not birth, but you know, from, from birth onwards. And tell us your trading story. How did you get to where you are today? Well that's a it's a great question and uh I feel almost very archaic um, in telling the story, but uh, we'll walk through it. Um, essentially, I was um, working, uh, going to school in downtown Chicago, and most of my classes that I was involved with was met in the afternoons because these professors had day jobs. I was in biomedical engineering, and these classes met in the afternoon, and I basically had my mornings free. A, friend, a good friend of mine was the member of the uh, Chicago Board of Trade, and he had asked me if I wanted to actually get a job at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange if they needed some help. This was back around 1981, and since I was going to school and since I had the mornings free in the summertime, I decided, you know what, I'm going to go in the morning and, and be a runner. I think they pay something like 2 $3 an hour. I was underway on the minimum wage. But I just wanted, to, I needed something in the morning that I wanted to do for a few hours a day and run out orders. So I'd go in the morning, and basically my school was about 10 minutes away from the exchange. And I hated it. I thought that it was the worst thing in the world. It was very chaotic. And how one of the people could understand each other was not the way that I thought the world worked. And being there for several months, I realized that there were specific, as a runner, there were specific orders that went into the pit. Obviously, there's no trading pit anymore, but their four experience gave me invaluable experience about markets. And I realized that there were certain large orders that went into the market at certain times. And I wasn't really interested in, in, in watching the taking out a piece of paper to a broker, but I was just interested in watching how the whole process worked. And I realized that there were large firms like the Goldman Sachs, the Dean Witters, which are no longer around, and large firms that would enter orders. And they would have locals, people in the pit, they call them locals, L-O-C-A-S, L-A-S. And they basically would take the other side of these particular trades for liquidity. So they would bid, and they mostly watched the Deutschmark, which is not existent anymore. It's part of the euro currency. And they would say they bid 1,000 contracts at 21, for example. And I would say, wow, that's a number that they must really want. Then at number 22 and 23, light volume. 24, heavy volume. 
and I was watching to see how they would kind of bid prices and offer prices. And I realized that not a lot of those orders were getting filled, but they were trying to push the market in a direction to get people to bite at the orders. So one day I was interested in see what orders got executed and filled. And I went to the library and I got something called sales by price. And I realized that there was a situation in which there was many orders at 21 that got filled. No orders, very few orders between 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. And the large orders, they say at 29. So there's a reason why they were buying it at 21 and selling it at 29. I didn't know why that happened, but I just thought that was interesting. And so I made a histogram. And the one side was like a goalpost, which 21 was one side. 29 was the next side. And the next morning, I would take that and make a graph. And I would say, okay, wait a minute. If the market gets to 21, there should be buyers. If the market went to 29, there would be sellers. Well, lo and behold, they become support and resistance to the market. So I was watching something called sales by price, which was it was, and it just included volume and price. So uh, one of the brokers on the floor said, here, do you think this stuff will work in the pin? Because he observed what I was doing. So I have no idea. So I started to, he goes, well, my sister's trading, and she's doing terribly. So I would just give her the numbers that I had the next day, and she began to make money. He said, do you think you can do that for us in my group? I said, I don't know. So as I was doing that for about a month or so, one of the people I, they found out from the floor said, Gary, why don't you go study Wyckoff? He does price and volume. Well, I went up to the library at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and decided to look for a book on Wyckoff. Well, I wasn't a member. I was just a situation. I was a runner, so I needed a member to take out the book. This book wasn't taken out for the last 20 years. It had dust on it and some markings. So I couldn't take the book out, so I stayed there and I photostated the whole book. And I read about price and volume with Wyckoff, and I self-taught myself. At that time, 1981, the S&P 500 became very popular, became a big contract. So I'd make my histograms every day, and I would put this together, and I was helping traders on the floor trade. As I learned Wyckoff, I started doing some technical analysis for um, Rich Dennis's group. They called them C&D Commodities. And by doing what I was doing, I was learning Wyckoff, and I was also getting to a point where I was doing my histograms. I studied Wyckoff about a year or so, started charting it, got hired by some large traders, traded successfully for them, and then I decided they uh, sponsored me for my CME seat, Chicago Mercantile Exchange seat, in the, in the indexes, in the S&P 500 indexes, the futures. And thus I traded then, and um, the rest of the story I've been in the business since 1981 up until today. What a great story. Absolutely superb story. Um, have you still got these histogram image, uh, pictures that you drew back in the day somewhere? Um, I don't know if I have the original ones. I, I'm not a real detail-oriented person as far as that goes. What basically happened was when I started doing these histograms, um, Singapore came online. And we didn't think they were very sophisticated traders, so I would take the overnight uh, volume of price. And I, and it, I had a, just a very – maybe it was lucky or whatever, but so happened these numbers were bang on to where they were support and resistance – 
these guys were very large scalpers in the pit. And I was able to see the whole flow. So I don't know. I don't think I have the originals, but I but I still do them. And it was funny because a little later on down the road, uh, Peter Stellemeyer with Market Profile was at the same time doing something that was interesting. And it was similar to Wyckoff, but it wasn't really Wyckoff. So, no, I really don't have the original work of that that I did. But I still um, look at sales by price as far as um, what gets executed. Because at that time, when they did the volume, they did a guesstimated volume on the exchange. So when a market went to one tick value, let's say the DMARC went from 21 to 22, they assigned a certain volume to that number. They assumed that there was maybe 1,000 contracts that got traded. So the quicker the market went back from 21 to 22, 21 to 22, they estimated that as volume. At the end of the day, they were probably close, maybe within 10, 15% of the actual volume. But today with computers, um, they get the accurate volume at each price. And I can't tell you how invaluable having that four pit experience is, because especially now it doesn't exist. So I was able to get a feel of the market by price. And I think that's a really big advantage. And today, when I left the four, you I you lose that feel to the pit, but you still feel the rush of the orders on the computer screen based upon the volume. And so, so the, I mean, that that your initial sort of histogram approach compared to Wyckoff. I mean, how did Wyckoff accentuate that to to the point where it was like, you know, a robust uh, strategy? I guess. Well, what happened was I, I realized that there was some big interest that were buying a thousand contracts at a price. Because it wasn't the people in the pit that was doing one contract and two contracts at a time. So when the market went down to 21 and there's a big volume there, I thought that some big interest found that to be undervalued or at support. And when it got to 29, they sold it, and I found that to, they found it to be overvalued. So when Wyckoff deals with trading ranges and the cause of effect in a market, the sideways of the market – I realized that most markets stay in trading ranges and they stay between value at 21 and overvalued at 29. And when white cost principles are important because they basically rule the economic day in the sense of when there's, when you go to a store and something is worth a certain amount of money, you're, it has value to you because you pay for it. If it gets too high in price, you won't pay for it unless you really want it. So if you buy something at value at 21, let's say you buy a cup of coffee at, say, U.S. money of $3, Starbucks, and if it goes to $5, you may not buy it. But somebody who really likes coffee is willing to buy it at 5 and maybe willing to buy it at $10. So it really, was, it really was, we do it every day in life, that we evaluate things that are valued to us and things we're not willing to pay for. And the markets are the same exact way. So I realized when the market was going down, it got big interest to people that was very much underpriced. Or Warren Buffett, as a matter of fact, has made his whole career on buying things that have undervalued, and then when there's too much value, he sells them. And basically, that's how large interests work. They're willing to step in and buy a product at a certain price that they feel has value, and to conduct a campaign let's say a value of 30, and to sell it at 50 when it's overpriced. 
Um, it may be a situation like buying Coca-Cola in the wintertime when it's out of favor. And in the summertime, the anticipatory move where the hot summer may make double in price based upon demand for Coca-Cola. So I just realized that, that even though Wyckoff was not a fundamentals person, but their fundamentals was part of the making the technical picture. So I wanted to know why these guys were buying a certain price volume, let's say large volume at 21, but not large volume at 23, because at 23, it didn't have the same value at 21. So it, it, to me, it was the composite operator or the composite man, which they called it back in the day, they were considering what the price of, of value was. And what was interesting to me was when prices went down, it stimulated buying by them because they found value. As markets go up, it stimulates buying by funds and specs who want to catch a move. So when the composite operator buys value and the market begins to move up, it stimulates people to traders and funds to buy higher to go higher. And that's and that's how the, the the markets actually work until they get to the point where they get too frothy on the top or too much fear on the bottom. And, and the markets go through this ebb and flow action of, of people's behavior. But buying value stimulates demand, and that's done by the large interest to do that. So, so I've asked this question to a, a few guys that have been on the show, or a number of guys, and I'll be interested to sort of hear your answer just because of what you've said so far in the show. Look, uh, so the question is, do you do you think, I mean, do you see the market being manipulated at all, or is this just the way it is? The market is manipulated every single day and almost probably every single minute of the market. But manipulation doesn't mean illegal. It means that they're willing to push prices higher or lower. So a great example would that be if I was a large interest in Goldman Sachs and I was in this occurred every day in the pit and I would bid for a thousand contracts at twenty one. The people in the pit would say, Well, if Goldman Sachs is buying the market at twenty one, okay, or it puts a bid in at twenty one, then I'm gonna buy it at twenty two and twenty three. Because I know that they're gonna support the market at twenty one. So the people in the pit, they begin to buy the market at 21, 22, 23, because they, they consider the market, um, that the composite operator is going to buy it behind them. And what they do is that they force the price up. Then the Goldman Sachs will bid 22, 23, but nothing is really being sold to them because people don't want to sell to Goldman Sachs, but they think the price is going higher. It gets to 25 and 26 and then Goldman Sachs uses four or five different brokers to sell 100 contracts here, 100 contracts there, 100 contracts there. So they really don't disguise that they really want to bid up prices to sell prices. So when the market begins to go down and the people in the pit bought things, when the market went back to 21, the whole pit says, oh, that's okay. They're going to buy the market 21. And they've kind of pulled the rug from under them, and they allow the market to go to 18. People panic. They sell their lungs out, and the composite operator gets long at 18. So they manipulate it by, not, by bidding prices, knowing that many people cannot take on the amount of size that they're bidding. This forces people to pay up for prices. They bid it up. 
and they're slowly selling to it. So they may use one broker in the pit and to bid, but they'll use 10 brokers to sell. So it disguises the fact that they're really getting short. You can actually see this many times on platforms today where you'll see a large amount of volume at a bid price, maybe 100,000 contracts or 50,000 contracts, and very few prices, very few transactions will happen at the bid price when there's big size. Because if someone sees a large bid, they're not going to sell into that. So they manipulate prices by trying to bid up prices without getting filled to sell, and vice versa to the downside. So is it legal? Of course it's legal, because if somebody wants to sell it to them, they're more than welcome to sell it to them at the bid. So they, they tend not to do that. Right. So they could push prices by not actually getting filled to bid up prices. And if, they, and if someone sells it to them, they take those orders, but they bid the prices up in order to sell at higher prices. Thus, the overbought, the overvalued and undervalued part of the market. And so, is that is that when we typically see like a, a quite a quite a strong spike up from a level versus a range, and then and then a move up? Correct. So, what you, so you'll see is if you just look at a platform, and it changes so frequently in a platform. But yes, um, you see that many times when there's a spike, there are people just willing to buy when. The, the composite operator, the composite man, the large interest, they want to obviously, you know, buy at value and fund. They know what value is. A, a fund and a trader, they know they don't know what value is, but they know if a market's going up, they want to be long. And if a market's going down, they want to be short. And so what happens is is that once the market breaks out, quote unquote. It stimulates buying. And most markets, probably 80% of markets at the time, are in trading ranges. So these are why these trading ranges, the white off are extremely important for undervalued, overvalued. But they use the people's emotions to either accumulate stock to go higher or distribute stock to go lower. And so, so what do you see as the, the major changes from you know, the 80s to to now when you're trading? I, I think the biggest difference today is speed. Um, when they used to have a runner running orders, it took, they were allowed three minutes to fill an order. Now you can instantaneously cancel an order within a half a second, no minute or a second. So I think speed becomes a very, very large factor. Now the large interest on the training floor, they did something called ARB, ARB, and they were able to pull orders very quickly. But the but the person, the one two lot trader, they would have to phone in an order to the broker, who then put it on paper and then put it to the pit. That process maybe took a couple minutes. So I think the difference today is speed. I think speed also has allowed the large interest to capitalize because they're because people in front of a screen, they like to push buttons. So I, think, so I think the traders, for the most part, trade more often than they ever did before because they're sitting behind a button and they don't have to call in an order or they don't have to go through the process of you know, the minute or two to get the order to the pit. So I think speed becomes the largest um, 
factor today. And and how and, and people tr- and people trade more today because of that reasoning. And how how's that sort of I suppose that over the course of time? I mean, how have you had to sort of reconfigure what you're doing when you you know when you're making money from this um, to, well, to maintain I, that? You know, I suppose that the when profit. I first when I first left the trading floor, um, and they told me to leave the trading floor because I saw things with price and volume, it was better off that I wasn't a scalper, one or two tick trader. I was more of an intermediate term trader. I think the difference is today is that you're able to see the whole world from a computer screen. When you're in the pit, you only saw your market in your little, let's say, area. Today, you're able to see the whole world and you're able to see money flow. So I think when I first saw the floor, I had, you had to adjust to that world. And the, the better trader who understands how markets work, they may not get the one-tick advantage from the trading floor. But the trader, the Wyckoff trader today, I think it's an advantage because he's able to see the money flow, the demand and supply and prices of certain markets. So I think the advantage goes to people today in trading that understand markets. Having said that, I think that every person – trades Wyckoff because they because Wyckoff is not a system, it's the way that the market actually works. So the great traders understand value under value of markets. So I think today to a good trader, I think what ends up happening is that it's an advantage off the floor than it ever was before. Even though the advantage of one tick in the pit, I think it was a dis- was an advantage to the floor trader but for the people that weren't one-tick traders, I think the advantage goes to the intermediate to longer-term traders today, and I think it really benefits a white trader. Nice. I think you're right. I think you're right as well. I mean, the whole sort of supply and demand theory, uh, Wyckoff relates to that. It all, I think, from what I've discovered over the the years that I've been doing this podcast, is that's the the, the one key clear advantage. Um, if you're trading these markets, it doesn't matter what market it is either. Um, all right, let's let's get into some of the the nuts and bolts with your trading these days. So I want to give the listeners some insight into, I suppose, your trading style, strategy, timeframes, winning percentages, some other stats that go with your trading. So so maybe let's start off with. Um, I mean, obviously, trading Wyckoff. Do you call it anything else? No, um, a lot of people use the term price and volume, but just really Wyckoff W Y C. K-O-F-F. He was basically a trader in the early 1900s, and he just observed the great minds of the, of the traders, the Rockefellers, the Keynes, and he would just watch how money flow would go into the pit, or go into, actually it was a, I shouldn't say the pit, would go on a, like almost a bucket shop, it went against the board. A thousand shares get priced at 32 and a half, and he would see how the market would accept or not accept those prices. And that's what basically what he did was, to see the price and the volume and what the volume did the price. And do you have do you have sort of much, uh, I mean, I often hear sort of, I'm struggling to, to sort of rack my brain to remember if this is connected or not, but I mean, volume spread analysis, That's is that something that you practice or? Yeah, volume spread analysis is actually, I, I, I knew Tom Williams, um, when he was in England, uh, I met him once um, via um, a satellite. And 
Management analysis is really just taking volume and price and moving. Um, it's it's a vendor that actually um, does this, but it incorporates a lot of Wyckoff, but it's not pure Wyckoff. So they took Wyckoff's principles and they renamed it volume spread analysis, and they do things a little bit different than Wyckoff, but it's not the pure Wyckoff from the, like the Wyckoff course or from the Wyckoff teachings. Um, but it, it, it's volume spread analysis, and I know those people work with them a little bit, they're actually they're more interested in, in volume and price and some Wyckoff, but not 100% Wyckoff. Okay. And what, and what's the, what do you sort of see as the, uh, the key advantage for Wyckoff over volume spread analysis, for example? Um, I think... In, I think in Wyckoff, I think if you're going to study the Bible, then read Wyckoff and 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 Wyckoff's principles and what Wyckoff did. I think that Wyckoff goes in much more detail than volume spread analysis. Um, they use the, again, they use the principles of Wyckoff, but they don't use the complete Wyckoff and they use their own little proprietary information that they do with Vine and Price based upon they do a they have a, um, a software that tries to calculate the Vine and Spread analysis of things. Having said that, I don't think that Wyckoff from a software package can be done very, very well because there are certain volumes at certain times that are not really determinable as far as getting the edge in the market. Um, you know, volume and price, they're constant in a sense of they always show up, but how you interpret the price and volume at certain phases of the Wyckoff principles, Wyckoff technique, can't really be quantified with software. They do a decent job in doing, trying to do that, but I think that you end up walking at a software versus looking at the market itself. And I think that could be dangerous. So I don't think Wyckoff, to a great degree, can be done well in trying to do a software package for it. Which is why many people, in my opinion, shy away from Wyckoff, because I think that it takes a lot of work. And I think people rather say, I want to buy the market above a 200-day moving average. I want to sell it under a 200-day moving average. And these are all based upon Wyckoff techniques. But the only thing in markets that are real in lifetime is price and volume. Everything else you see, indicators, RSI, is lagging to price and volume. So all those indicators work very well when markets trend. They fail when markets become choppy in the trading ranges. So volume increasing on a rally in a bear market could be much different than volume increasing in an up market in a bull market. But a software doesn't recognize necessarily the difference, whereas the Wyckoff trader will understand the phases of the Wyckoff cycle to make that difference. So that's why I think the big difference between Wyckoff and volume spread analysis is interpreting the phases 
of white glove of volume and price. Okay, that makes sense. Now, um, let's get into some of the stats around your trading. So what markets were actually, first of all, what markets are you trading uh, across? Well, I, I, trade, I try to look at everything. And what I essentially do, I use a, a CQG platform, Commodity Core Graphics Platform, which is what the exchange used back in the, when I was first out in the early 80s because they take out bad ticks and bad data. So I kind of use that in, in, my, in my platform doing that because they're more, the most accurate um, you know, vending thing that I, that I know of. Okay, I'm sorry, and I forgot the other part of your question. Um, just the markets that you trade. Oh, the markets trade. So I tend to watch all the markets, and what I do is I will put alerts on my system. So if I have support at 31 in a market, I'll put the market an alert at 36. So when it gets to 36, I'll watch the market and hear my support. I'm not interested in markets that don't give me the edges or they're not at support and resistance. So I do. So I do watch around all the commodities on my screen. Now, do I trade all them? No, but I look for opportunities in areas of support and resistance to try to trade them. So I do look at all markets. Okay, and so you you look at indices, currencies, stocks as well. Yes. So I look. So I look at stocks, but I don't really trade stocks. But I look at stocks. But I, and the reason why I look at all things is because I really believe. I learned from some great traders that there's a money flow in the markets, that there's a certain amount of money in the world that tries to find the home of value. So if I want to see if money is going into the stock market, it may be coming out of another market. So I tried to look at markets from the standpoint of money flow and what is value under value of markets. For example, if stocks go down and people sell stocks, where does those, where's that money going to? Is it going into cash or is it going into bonds or gold? So I watch the whole world as one as one moving picture. And so I watch all the markets to see if things are in cahoots with each other. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense though. Um, right, now let's get into these stats. So uh, what's what's your winning percentage? Well, it's, it's really, I will tell you, it's really hard. I really haven't calculated that per se. But I will tell you that the greatest, the best trades in the world are probably right between 30 and 40% of the time. And the white and white call, and that's kind of in working with markets. Wyckoff wanted to get the winning trades to be over 50%. So the key is if you trade a market, even some of these money fund managers who trade with 30% accuracy, if money managers there, they could take a trade of $1,000, $1,000, $1,000, then I've lost of $200 for eight times and still come out ahead. So it really becomes a factor of money management. So I really think that it's, I don't calculate percentage of gains because you could be 90% let your losers ride and just take small profits. So I think the, the question would be more of your question is money management and how you control the money management aspect of Wyckoff and, should, and he advocated a three-to-one risk-to-one ratio. So I don't think percentage of tr- winning trades are important, but I think what's more important is is the concept of the money management to the trades you take. 
Cool. That's good because that was my next question. Um, <laughs> so is that is it three to one? Yeah, he liked to do three to one, but personally, if I have a trade that's maybe one to one, but I feel a ninety percent chance of being successful, I, I'll probably take that trade because my percentage is so high. If I think it's a three to one risk to ratio, but I don't think it's a great chance of making money, maybe I'm buying in the middle of range. Then, then it, it's a little bit different. So I'd rather have the higher percentage trade at certain edges than other trades. So I think in Wyckoff, he advocated three to one. You should risk, you know, um, you have a tripling of your money versus one. So if you're risking a hundred dollars, you look for a three hour gain. And what's your what's your average trade duration? Um, I usually keep it anywhere from several hours to a month. Um, if I'm in a situation where I keep situations, I'm in a long-term trade, I may put on a spread type of thing where I can keep it because I don't want to get jabbed out of the market. So I really, when I first put a trade, my thought process is to use point and figure to see what my cost is for the move. So if I think a market moves $300, you know, it may move that in one day. If my goal and the market goes sideways, and my cost becomes bigger, my sideways action becomes bigger, like, like gas in a the car, then I may keep that for duration to move. As long as the market is going in my direction and acting the way I thought it would when I put the trade on, I let the market kind of dictate the way I get out. And what about um, the number of trades that you've got running at any one time? Well, I... Really, I if it spreads, I tend to do I tend to do a lot of option selling. The markets have, they have trade ranges. Um, it may be I may have a, a larger. I'm not a real scalper in which I'll get in in five minutes later get out. Um, it could be fairly large size over a period of time if if the market's going in my favor. Um, what about time frames? I mean, what are you looking to enter on lower time frames, higher time frames? How do you use time frames? Well, what I do is, great question. So when I look at a market, I look at it from up to down and then down to up. In other words, I'll look at the monthly chart and I'll try to glean which the trend of the monthly chart is. Let's say the monthly chart is up. And then I'll look at the weekly chart. The market is up. On the daily chart, the market is up. Then I'll go down to my smaller time frames to see if I can get good entry when all my time frames match up. So that's the ideal situation to happen. Now, there may be a situation currently in a market like the stock market that maybe the trend may be up, but short-term down. So I will trade that way. I look at the intermediate portion of the day or several days, maybe sell the market short until support. So I really try to take my time frames from higher to lower and then work off from lower to higher to get execution. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and what does your typical trading day look like? Well, I'm usually up around 4.30 in the morning. Um, Europe is open for about two, three hours at that time. I try to gather the high and low of what Europe looks at. Then I look at that market compared to what it did yesterday. Did Europe, Asia, or Australia go outside the you know, the U.S. market days. 
And well, then I'll look for if there's any violent moves or large moves that happened overnight. And I will put it, I will plot the overnight market. I'll compare that to the day, the previous day of the U.S. market. And I'll try to get ease of movement or trend over the last day or so. And then I'll extrapolate that out to see where the weekly's at and where the monthly's at too to see where the market is relative to the weekly and monthly highs and lows. And then when the market and our markets open, essentially all the news has been discounted from Europe, Asia, and Australia because they go through the grind of interpreting it. And then I wait for about an hour after the stock market opens in Chicago. By that time, all the news is digested and the market takes on its own flavor. Yeah, interesting, yeah. So, so you try and avoid that market open? Yeah, I do because, you know, the reason why it's important is because you get a lot of people that write newsletters. And a lot of newsletters will take the close of the previous day. And they'll say, well, the market closed strong by the opening. Well, if you get a lot of people that buy the opening in the market, there's somebody who's selling them for liquidity. So what ends up happening is that all the buyers or the sellers from what the newspaper the newsletters say, most people don't watch the market all day long. And if you notice, the heaviest volume in the market is the opening hour and the closing hour. Because that's when a lot of funds and people make decisions if they're not watching the market all day long. So people that get in in the morning have to make a decision, do they hold or get out in the evening? And, and many traders don't keep it overnight, so you see the volume on the opening and the volume on the closing. Interesting, interesting. And so how does your how does your day, so you start after open, how does the day end up? Um, well, I, what, what happens is after the first hour, I try to see if there's a market exhibit strength or weakness for that day. Then I'll try to look at a small time frame, maybe a 15 minutes to an hourly time frame, to see if I get support and resistance in the trend of that particular day. And if I see resistance, I'll look at the weekly and monthly to see where that resistance lines up. So after the opening hour or so, I usually don't trade the first hour, I watch it to see direction. If it's bullish, I look to buy the retest lower. If it's bearish, I look to sell the retest higher. And a day unfolds in which usually, since the news is already out with reports and everything, most markets tend to trade and trend the way that they do it in the first hour or so unless there's news. The best trending markets, I find, are the currencies because they're interbank markets. And unless there's some particular news, they will follow that way of trading. If it's a bullish day, they'll go up. The bear state will go down. Very rarely do they reverse. They do with news, but very rarely do they reverse. Yeah, that's interesting. Interesting to know. Take note of that, guys. Um, right. So, so what is what's your view on cryptocurrency trading? Is that market in your bucket that you look through? Well, I probably have a different view than most people do. Um, to be quite frank with you, um, when it first came out and Everyone's making a big to-do about it. 
there was different countries and different people were using it. What gave it validity was the exchange backed it. And usually when the exchange backs it, like the CME backs it, Chicago Mercantile Exchange backs it, it usually has legs to it. And when the market came out and people bought it up to 20000 and it was very difficult to try to trade that. And I didn't, the problem I have with the cryptocurrencies is that it wasn't based on anything. In other words, I can look at corn and see if this corn grows around the world. I can look at a stock and see earnings. But cryptocurrencies, what was I going to equate that to? And I couldn't equate that to anything. So many people called me and they asked me about the cryptocurrencies. I said, until people have a reason to own it or not own it, it's going to be very difficult for it to be sustained. So I really stayed away from the cryptocurrencies, even though they become you know, popular, but I think a lot of people really got hurt by them. And a lot of people made a lot of money. And until it gets a market that there's a correlation to, I think it'd be very difficult for it to get legs. Now, I could be in the minority of doing that, but that's how I feel about it. Because when the S&P 500 came into being in 1981 or 1980, the, the large traders, the Goldman Sachs and those companies, were able to hedge their stock against futures. So there's a purpose to do that, to hedge it. The euro-dollar contract, not the euro currency, the euro-dollar contract, is the largest market in the world because banks use that for interest rates for, for mortgages and things of that nature. So they were able to hedge the market. And the cryptocurrencies, there wasn't a hedge against anything. So it's very difficult to say, okay, well, the stock market's going up, the cryptocurrency goes down. If I know that interest rates go up in the United States, that gives value to a U.S. dollar. What did that do to cryptocurrencies? So I think until it gets linked to something that people can make sense with, I think it's more of a crapshoot at this point. But since the exchange is backing it, I think it will be here for a while. And so, so as a crapshoot, I mean, what do you reckon Bitcoin, where do you think it will end up by the end of the year? I think, well, Bitcoin has, for the last several months, has gone down quite, has gone sideways. I charted every day. Um, I, the trend is down to the market. There doesn't seem an interest at this market. So it's really the market, for the most part, has become, you know, apathetic in buying it down here. Now, many times when markets do that, they have tremendous rallies because everybody is sold out of them. But at this point, the trend is down from a technical standpoint, and they act weak. So my feeling is they have to go to some type of value area, which they haven't gotten to yet, in order to be bought. So I don't think we're there yet. I remember um, a guy uh, I play football with was like saying, oh, if only I got in at 3,000. And it's almost back there now. So, you know, he's got a second chance at the at the, uh, the cherry. Who knows whether or not it'll, that'll be the figure. Yeah, I think, I think it's very difficult because... You know, as I mentioned many times in, this, in our conversation, is that what is value to, to the currencies? What is value to Bitcoin? I don't know what the value is. I can calculate value to a degree of a stock by earnings. I can calculate the value of corn by the amount of production. But how do I evaluate what Bitcoin is worth? 
Now, if people are using it, obviously the value is up, but value is determined by the person who's willing to buy it. If you're going to buy a house at a million dollars and it's overpriced, you only need one person to buy that house at a million dollars to have value at a million. People may think it's worth 500000 but if someone's willing to pay a million, the market's a million. So whatever the value of crypto that people are willing to tr- buy and sell it at, that's the value at that current time. But it doesn't mean it's a good, good buy or good value in the longer term. Interesting stuff, guys. Take a take take some heed some advice there. Um, all right, let's move on. Uh, in the beginning, what do you think? Actually, we know what what made you different. You you spent all that time in the CME, so I won't ask that question. What do you recommend um, a retail trader spend? The, uh, what do you recommend they do? What steps should they take to start earning income in this business? Underst- well, I will say that I must 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 read anybody that trades is Remnants of a Stock Operator by Jesse Livermore. It will tell you the trial and tribulations of a trader who made millions and lost millions and how we did it. I think what's very important, like any business that you're in, it's a business, is to understand how the markets work and what makes markets move. And to a retail person, understanding what makes price move or what doesn't make price move is critical. Once you do that, your technical analysis lines that get drawn become easier because you draw them from areas of support and resistance based upon the market's behavior. So I think understanding market's behavior, understanding price and volume and how it moves, I think are key to understanding markets and having success. So if you had to had to split your trading up into technical versus fundamental, I mean, how, how much of a role does fundamental play? Well, I think fundamental trading obviously plays a role, but I don't believe that the technical price forecasts what the fundamentals did. You'll many times see a market bottom before the fundamentals get the lowest. You'll see a market top before the fundamental becomes the, the highest. So I think that Wyckoff believed that price was reflected upon the fundamentals of the market. It's kind of what the stock market does. When the stock market sees stuff six months in advance, the price you see today, they're reflecting what they think six months down the road. So the fundamentals and the technical do play a role hand in hand, but Wyckoff really understood seasonals, understood the fundamentals, but he basically that was built in the price. Because how do I know, you know, you don't, how many exact corn do you know out there? You don't. But I do know the price at a given time of what people feel value is. And thinking about the technicals, I mean, what three things, you've mentioned a few of them already, but what three things would you recommend a novice or intermediate trader educate themselves on? Educate them on, I think, understanding markets, in understanding um, the, the concept of effort versus result, in understanding how price moves. In other words, if a stock goes up $1, I'm using U.S. money or one point, on a million shares one day. The next day, the stock does not go up at all on 10 million shares. Obviously, there's a, the market did not go up 
and had more volume, that becomes a red flag. So I'm always equating the volume relative to price. When I see a discrepancy between the two, I understand that somebody's either stopping the market or allowing the market to move. And the people that allow that to move are the large interest. So my, my biggest advice is to watch the tape, because that's what Wyckoff was, was a tape reader. The volume versus the price and how much the bar moves with the price that's being traded at a particular time. And we can do that shorter term, and we can do that longer term as a campaign. And you mentioned currencies. I mean, how, how, do the, how does one get hold of that information through currencies? What's the best way you found? Um, as, you mean as far as pricing, as far as... As far as uh, volume, um, getting, getting view of the volume. I know it's... So- um, I think you can... Any... I would pick a good vendor. As I said, you CQG, they, they got bad ticks. I think they've come a long way in, in trying to do that. The problem with Forex markets... It's an interbank market, and they don't show you all the volume in Forex. So it's kind of a hidden bank trick that they don't want you to know the volume. Um, but if you're watching it, I would watch the amount of volume in a currency in a particular area. Let's say the Japanese yen between 21 and 26. Is the volume heavy in that area, or is it light in that area? And if you see it heavy in that area, then there's some interest. There's a battle between the funds and traders versus the composite operator with large interest. So increasing volume is increasing activity. It's the transfer of risk that occurs. Even a market that's slow still has significance, but a market that has volatility shows you that, like right now the stock market shows you the market's trying to find some type of equilibrium of price. And you're looking for price and volume discrepancy based upon the area that a market's trading in. Nice. Nice description there, I think. Um, guys, go back and have a listen to that again to make sure you can picture it and maybe get a price chart up to uh, to see how that would look on the chart. Right, uh, Gary, let's fire into the quick fire round. Um, got nine quick fire questions that will hopefully give the listeners a bit more insight into what it takes to become successful in this gig. So the first one is, how long did it take you to go from newbie to consistently profitable? Well, everybody is different. Everything's a different roadmap. I think some people will never get it, and some people will get it very quickly. I think that it really takes, like most businesses, I think it takes about a year. The rule of thumb that I really follow and tell people is that if you could survive in this business for one year and see the trial and tribulation of the market movement, I think, you, I think you increase your chance of being successful. As we know that most businesses fail in one year. So most people have money, and, but they don't have knowledge. I think the key is to, to lose a little bit of money or to hold your own and to learn a lot. And once you can bridge that gap between them and then have money left with experience, then I think, but I would say six months to a year, of really working hard at it, I think, um, is where you will get an idea of is it good for you or not good for you. I think that if you take one particular week, it can just be a bad week. It can be a bad month. So like a business-wise, you may have a great day at your restaurant, but it may snow for a week and the business closes. 
that doesn't mean your business is no good. It just means at that time you couldn't do any business. So I think most people that I mentor and tutor, I think that it takes them, I do, I do unlimited mentoring. So it takes them probably about three to four months to really grasp everything and then to put that in um, bridging the gap from theory and lecture into trading, I would say six months to a year. And what about what about yourself? If you can think back to back in the day, how long did it take you to well, go? Well, what I did was I kind of I kind of I kind of did a gimmick and a trick. Um, I had success from almost from day one because when I used these histograms, I kind of cheated. I didn't really know Wyckoff, but I saw the volume of different prices and I used a histogram. So I had almost immediate success by following those histograms, which I think kind of worked today too, for, to, be, to be quite frank. But So I had an immediate success in doing that simply because I didn't know Wyckoff at the time, but it was something in which I just said, okay, buy it here and sell it here. So if you're asking me what I had success with Wyckoff, it probably was about six months afterwards. What's your mental approach to trading, and do you have any special techniques you can share with us? Yeah, I think the most important thing, like in sport or anything, is to keep an even keel. The greatest traders that I walked off the floor with every day, you could not tell if they made millions or lost millions. They're very stoic. They never got too high, and they never got too low. And I'll tell you a story. When I left the trading floor one time, there was I was walking off the floor, and I just started trading. There was a multi-multi-millionaire. He probably was a billionaire at the time. And he, there was a penny on the ground. He stopped and picked it up. He said, never, never lose an opportunity to get money. So, so then I might pick up pennies, but I always did. But, but I was embarrassed to pick up the penny in front of a guy like that. So I think the really important aspect of business is not to get too high and not to get too low in business. Interesting. Uh, good advice as well. Now, what's your favorite entry setup? Great. That's a great question. So I think, you know, and we don't believe it as novice traders, but as we get more experience, we believe it in everything. I believe the best setup trade that you can have is all the time frames that you follow, 15-minute, 30-minute, 60-minute day, whatever you follow. You want that to be in the trend of your trade. And then as a trading range, which is basically a sideways horizontal action, when you start to see activity near the creek area, the resistance area, or you see a spring, a penetration support on the right-hand side of this particular trading range, so picture the market going sideways from February until December, and then the market begins to show activity in December, which is the right-hand side if you're looking at a, at, a, at a chart. And you're looking for the market to show strength and weakness on the right-hand side. And that right-hand side can last minutes. That right-hand side can last days. It can last years. And you're looking for strength or weakness to present itself on the right-hand side. And then you're looking to buy support if the market is stronger you're looking to buy and sell resistance if the market is weaker. But the, and the reason why you wait for the right-hand side 
is because now you, it's like gas in a car. The more gas you have in a car, the more the market can move. And if you're right and the market's bullish, you can incorporate your three-to-one risk reward ratio based upon buying strength at support, not breakouts. Buying strength at support and selling resistance in markets that are bearish. I like that analogy, the old gas in the car thing. That's easy to remember and, and picture. Um, what strategies do you use to exit or manage active trades? So I'm, if I buy support, I want to be consistent like a business. So if I buy support, I'll sell resistance. So if I see a, with a point-to-figure chart, we can tell how far a market's going to move. That's a guesstimate. So if I see a market that has used up all the gas in a car or all the point-and-figure of a particular market, I will liquidate. Or if I, if I trade, hopefully you trade two contracts. The one contract, you get out resistance. The second contract, you hold with a stop underneath, let's say you're long, underneath a demand bar, and you're short underneath it's over above a supply bar. So I exit basically by reading the tape. And, you know, when you first put a trade, if you buy the 20, you should have somewhat of a target at 40, let's say. When it gets to 40, evaluate the market's behavior. If it does not act the way the market should act, then get out. What's your recommended trading book? I'm sorry? What's your recommended trading book? Um, well, I mentioned Remnants of a Stock Operator. And I recommend any book with price and volume that you can find. Um, the Wyckoff course in itself is fantastic. It's a little bit dry. Um, it's fantastic. It's the Bible. I try to liven it up by my pit experience and what it is when I do my webinars and lectures. But um, I think that any book that you could read on price and volume and how markets work is the best books that I could recommend. If there was one thing you'd recommend to any retail spend the next month mastering, what would it be, why, and how could they go about mastering it? Well, I, it's a great question. It's now every market goes to a different phase. Right now we're dealing with midterm elections in the States, which can cause and tariffs in China, and you have a lot of news. I would look at markets in the world, and I would see where which are strong and which are weak. So I look at the overall pricing of stock and pricing of commodities over the next several months to see what 2019 looks like. So I look where the money is going, what's, what's, what are stronger and what are weaker. White is a big advocate of buying strength in markets and selling weakness in markets. So I would wait to see markets that will show strength or markets that will show weakness and in the background of the market to see what kind of position to take. What's your preferred broker and trading platform? I like CQG, Commodity Core Graphics. Um, I think they're, the, they're still the most accurate um, of all the vendors. I'm sure that a lot of vendors have become better at it. It's, it, it's used mostly from institutionals in large interest, not so much for the retail trader, simply because the full package is expensive. They have cheaper versions of it. But 
for the most part, what I would do is anything that has um, price and volume that's accurate. You can look at there's many there's a thousand platforms out there I would use, but make sure you have accurate price, you have accurate volume. What's your worst ever trade? Great question. So, one of the things when you lose control of a trade, you've lost the trade. And my first month that I traded, I made a lot of money when I was a, when I was a trader. And I actually did two bad trades. And one of the guys, a friend of mine, had, had recommended a strategy to put on. And it was just an option premium. And I put him on, and I told the guys that I worked for, put this on. So all three of us put the trade on. And they said, Gary, I don't like this trade. I'm getting out. They made a little money. My friend of mine was in the trade for several days. said, Gary, this trade's not working. I'm going to get out. And he lost a little money. I held the trade about a week later, costing $50,000. Oh, dear. And so that was probably my worst trade because I didn't have the foresight, the experience to cut a loss short or to get out when I thought the market wasn't working. Yeah. Since I was up money, since I was up money, I think, ah, it's going to come back. So then I lost basically my whole trading account. And Barry Lynn from Lynn Waldock said, now you go home and you'll trade. And I nickeled and dimed it for literally a year to get that money back for those couple weeks that I lost that money. So I think not having, losing control of a trade and not getting out when you think you're wrong in the market. So I think the hardest thing, especially for males in this business, is to admit that you're wrong. And the expression is your first loss, your best loss. And it really is all true. And I try to tell people that today, but we all learn that lesson. I think that most traders that become successful have had very, very large drawdowns at one point. It's just the nature of the beast. And as much as you try to prevent it, I think you have to go through it. And I went through it. Right. Now, the last question of the quickfire round is, if you could leave our listeners with one piece of advice, what would it be? Today, I would, I would run, you know, if you're in a theater, and I tell my lectures, and you see a spark run. If you, and some people that are smart will see a spark walk out. Some people will see smoke and walk out. The rest of the people will wait for the fire to engulf the theater. The best piece of advice is that a trade, no matter how confident or, or, or confident you are in the trade, if it does not do what you intend the trade to do over a certain period of time, get out. If you can prevent yourself from losing money, you increase your likelihood of making money. But if you take large losses in this business, you'll have no chance of success. So, so anybody could draw two lines and say, boy, that's support, I'll buy it. It's not that you buy the support or sell the support at those particular areas. What is important is that if you're wrong, run. Because ultimately, the profits will take care of themselves. But if you cannot trade and get out of the loss quickly, 
when you're wrong because you have a chance of every trade to be wrong. Okay? I think the most important thing is that if you're wrong, to admit as quickly as possible that you are wrong. Once you do that, once you do that and admit that you're wrong, I think you have a high degree of, of having a better chance of success. But if you do not run from the spark, then I think it becomes very problematic. And no one knows if you're right or wrong on trade when you put the trade on. But you do control if you think you're wrong to get out. And I think that's the key. And one thing that I highly, highly stress is the trade does not do what you expect to do in the time frame that you put the trade on. Get out. Yeah, it's so true. I, I, that resonates with me fully. Right, um, Gary, we got one last question before we wrap up. So we'd like you to give us the bones of a full trading strategy, entry setup, stop loss, take profit targets, market time frame, basically something our listeners can try at home this week. What have you got for us there? Well, great question. I would look at a market. I would take a chart, and I look at the structure of the chart, and I would look to see if the market is in a, in a trending market, what it's doing. If the trending is down, I would turn off my buy sensors, and I would look to sell the market. So I would look at the market for the action and the reaction to the market itself. The quicker the market runs away from a price, the more important that price becomes. So I would look at market to see at what levels price, what market runs away from price, runs away from support or runs from resistance. So if you were to look at a market, is the market kind of slowly moving away from price or is it going fast more price? That tells you the structure of the market. The faster it runs away, the more overbought or oversold the market is because the market gets extended. The markets that go sideways or have clustered closes and other closes that are very similar to each other is a market that's equal equilibrium. So I would judge the market how price and volume react from certain levels. Something may be worth 30, but if it goes to 26 to a CM, it's worth more value. They may have more volume at 26 because he's buying something undervalued. So I would look at price compared to volume to see if the, how the markets react to those prices. Nice. Cool. Now, before we wrap up, what's the best way for the listeners to get hold of you? Well, you can go to my site, if you like. This information is there. Um, it's llarrytomgary-trading.com is the name of my website. Um, there are a ton of free webinars. I do two of them per week on Sunday evening in the States. I do a bar-by-bar analysis of markets. On Wednesday evening, I do free stock night, in which people will present stock questions and we go over stocks. So Sunday evening and Wednesday evening, free webinars, they're recorded and they're archived, everything's archived. And if you um, want to reach me with the email, it's G as in Gary, G, and the letter G, Fullet, F-U-L-L-E-T-T, at L-T-G, Larry, Tom Gary, hyphen trading.com. And I'll reach me directly. 
Brilliant. And I'm basically there about 18 hours a day watching markets for clients. I have many clients overseas. Then I do brokerage and I do the mentoring for people as well too, as well as a daily newsletter. Superb. Look, I, I, I know it's taken us a while to get here, but I'm so glad that we did and we got a good, it's ticking over now, hour and seven minutes of interview. We had some technical hiccups before, but it's come across really well. So thank you very much for coming on the show, Gary. It's been a pleasure having you here. Well, it's an honor, and I hope that if one person learns one thing, our time was well spent. So good luck to everybody, and if I could be of any assistance, please feel free to shout out. So a big thank you to Gary for sharing with us today. Everything we've discussed here, along with all the links, are in the show notes. To find them, simply search for Gary in the search box on tradingnut.com. Until next time, I wish all my listeners trading happiness and success. All right, guys, so there we have it. Great interview with Gary. Now, if you do want to learn more from this guy, as I mentioned at the start of the show, we've got this demo trading edu contest that we're running in early January. So it's two weeks of intensive education with him. The, you get a, you get a, his course, you get his um, newsletter. There's a bonus as well. You actually get the bonus as well. So check it out, guys. Um, there's a bonus, a great bonus, which is which is valued at way more than what this training is actually worth. And you get the chance to win it back. And you get the chance to win even more than it back. So it's an absolutely fantastic offer, guys, Hitting you, setting you up for 2019. There's an early bird offer now on the site, so you actually get 10% off if you head over there now and sign up before the countdown timer finishes. Uh, what else can I tell you about it? Look, it's worthwhile giving it a crack, even if you're not a Wyckoff trader, because I think Wyckoff does apply. It can, it, be, it can be applied to a lot of other trading techniques, and it can bolster whatever you're doing now in the markets, okay? So it's just great education and a great opportunity. So check it out, guys, tradingonlight.com. There's links in the show notes and forward slash demo comp to get access to that. And the links in the show notes are also, uh, there's a link to my YouTube channel as well, where I'm going to be putting more stuff up. So guys, have a great trading week. I'll see you next time on the airways if I don't see you on YouTube beforehand. All right, guys, see you later. Bye.